Welcome back to Can He Do That? A podcast where we explore the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Last week, we told you that we would be talking about Mar-a-Lago and the Trump residences with Jenna Johnson, and I promise we will get to that episode some point soon. But in the meantime, some news happened. I'm establishing new vetting measures to keep radical Islamic terrorists out of the United States of America. We don't want them here. This is this is about the safety of America, and there's a reason that the majority of Americans agree with the president. That's right. When Trump signed the executive order last Friday banning immigration from seven Muslim-majority countries, we knew we had to talk about it. And here to help me figure that out is senior editor and author of Trump Revealed, Mark Fisher. Mark, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. So, Mark, can you explain to our listeners what this executive order is, what it says, who it applies to? So what it does is it orders three groups to be blocked from the country, refugees from anywhere in the world for about four months, refugees from Syria basically forever or at least until there's some new regulations created, and people who are coming from seven mostly Muslim countries, Iran, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen. So the order itself doesn't actually say in it anywhere the words Muslim or Christian, but it's widely been interpreted as targeted towards Islam. Why is that the way that people are interpreting this? Well, what it says is that people will be given kind of a special status and that uh, they'll be allowed into the country if they are part of a minority religion in the country that they are living in. That is Christians. The irony here, though, is that quite a number of the people who have already been blocked from coming into the country were indeed Christians who were fleeing the oppression in those very same countries. So one of the major goals of the order has already, by virtue of the order, we've seen the opposite effect. So on that point, does it matter if we call it a Muslim ban or a ban at all? I mean, it is a ban, at least temporarily, at least for the moment, it is in effect a ban on all refugees. And there was, you know, we've seen all the dramatic pictures of people trying to come into the country and uh, people who had been cleared and vetted in this long, long process that the government uses. And so it has the effect of a ban immediately. So that's really the lay of the land. And there's a lot more questions that surround this. So we're going to try to answer them. So let's start with that first one. Is this unusual? Is this unprecedented historically? And to answer that, we turn to an expert, David Beer from the Cato Institute. He's their immigration policy analyst, and he knows this history cold. Well, we certainly have a long history of bans on immigrants from certain regions and certain countries, really going back until the 1880s when we first banned the Chinese from coming to the United States. Most of those bans, however, came from Congress. It's really congressional action that spurred the change in the law. This time, we're really seeing a dramatic shift in our immigration policy by executive order. And that's what's unprecedented in this uh, most recent change by Donald Trump. One of the interesting parallels with this situation is is the so-called Muslim ban aspect of it, where we're, we're trying to target religious group uh, within these countries. There's a very interesting parallel to this historically. In 1924, when we first passed the discriminatory immigration laws that banned Asians and Africans, 
We were also trying to ban Jews from coming to the United States from Eastern Europe. And we successfully reduced the visas for Eastern Europe to a very low level. And when the Jewish population was outraged, they said it's discriminatory, they're trying to target Jews, they're trying to keep us out. The response from the proponents of the bill was like, well, there are exceptions and there's nothing in the law that says we're targeting you, even though everyone knew at the time that that's exactly what they were trying to do. So the word the word Jew or Jewish didn't appear in any of those restrictions. Exactly. Uh, but they were defined to include them just exactly. as uh, the countries named in the Trump ban are all m- predominantly Muslim countries. Absolutely, yes. During World War II, there was a lot of resistance among the American public to the idea of bringing in war refugees. And so uh, President Roosevelt, uh, for a long time resisted the idea of bringing in Jewish and Eastern European refugees. Uh, In that case, was he somewhat similar to Trump's uh, argument about uh, keeping out potential enemies? The parallel is actually a really good one. Uh, If you look at that period of time, the State Department was issuing new and stricter vetting rules for visitors to the United States. They were afraid that Nazis would sneak in among the German Jewish population to the United States. Uh, We didn't really see those fears borne out, even among the populations that were brought over. There were a couple of examples, sort of similar to the couple of examples you may have heard in the refugee debate today, but really not the level of a threat that would constitute justification for turning away all of those Jewish refugees. But then toward the end of World War II, Roosevelt did decide to allow a few Jews into the country, and he did that in a way that kind of set the tone for what we're dealing with today, right? Absolutely. Uh, You know, the Holocaust really brought out our current refugee system internationally. The, The response to it, once they realized what we had done by sending these people back to death camps, really changed the debate about refugees worldwide and uh, really created the rules for the current system. And so Roosevelt ended up issuing an executive order uh, that allowed a thousand Jews into the country. Uh, What happened then and, and what was the reaction to it? What impact did it have on our policy going forward? FDR did an executive order to allow the thousand that you mentioned to come over really uh, adopted a sort of a, a expansion of executive power in order to do that. And we're seeing the opposite direction today. But then uh, things changed in the 1960s when, as a result, perhaps of the Civil Rights Movement and Civil Rights Act, we saw a change in the whole approach to immigration. What was that change and what effect did it have on future presidents' attitudes toward immigration and refugees? You're right. So for many years, as we mentioned, we had this discriminatory immigration system that excluded almost all Asians, almost all Africans. And in 1965, just after we had passed the civil rights legislation the year before, President Johnson requested that Congress change the immigration laws to make them fair, make every country have an equal shot at the quotas. And as part of that bill, they banned discrimination based on national origin against immigrants. So how effective has that turned out to be? I mean, have we really been open to all equally ever since then? Or did nation of origin really play a role in the succeeding decades? Well, we've, we've made exceptions to the rule, and we still take into account national origin in certain ways. For example, the Cuban asylees, we made an exception saying basically we're not going to send Cubans back to totalitarianism, communism. So that was one exception that we built into that rule. But for the most part, the system has held up. We do accept immigrants from all parts of the world, regardless of nationality. 
So now those who are defending President Trump's move today say, uh, hey, this isn't so different from what other presidents have done. And they point to the period right after 9-11 as their example of how at times when we have said people from certain countries are not allowed in. Well, we did reduce certain levels of immigration, certain types of immigration. We've never seen an outright ban of all types of immigration from certain countries or certain regions of the world. In fact, the Bush administration looked into that idea right after 9-11 and rejected an outright ban. So, you know, even him during the what would constitute a national crisis uh, decided not to go with that approach. So something else that certainly seems in contrast to presidential norms as we've seen throughout history, is the way in which this executive order was implemented. First, the White House gave some contradictory statements about whether green card holders would be let in. Then some Customs and Border Protection agents weren't sure how to enforce the order. And the order was reportedly not thoroughly vetted in advance by high-ranking officials like Secretary Kelly. Did all of that confusion really just make room for the opposition to drive the narrative pretty quickly? The big problem here from a political perspective is that they did this without consulting with anybody. The, The president certainly has the right under the law to regulate immigration and to decide who gets in and to set the number of refugees that we admit in any given year. But what happened here is they just sprang this on people. And so both within the administration, people who work for the various agencies that have to enforce this law didn't know what to do, and the people who needed to communicate the law down through the chain of command or through Congress, they didn't know what to do either because they'd never seen the thing. But clearly this is a case where the confusion and the unclear writing in the order, uh, which has left things open to interpretation, led to it being applied in very different ways at different airports around the country. And that kind of inconsistency feeds the opposition. So so that lack of clarity around the implementation actually raised a lot of concern from, from various whistleblowers. So we actually saw late Wednesday that the Office of the Inspector General at the Department of Homeland Security said that it will, in fact, conduct a review of the immigration ban's implementation. What might come as a result of that review? Well, what the Inspector General will be looking at is how this was actually put into play. And were there differences between what happened at Kennedy Airport versus Dulles versus another place? And did the people at the ground level actually enforce the word of this order. And the order is, if you read it, it's not written in the way that executive orders are often written. One thing that really stands out is the president uses the word I to describe himself. You don't find that in executive orders. Uh, So it's just something that will strike people in very different ways. And we should also just note here that there was further misinformation when it came to some of the numbers that the White House was sharing. So on Monday, Trump tweeted and Sean Spicer also said, only 109 people out of 325,000 were detained and held for questioning. Our wonderful fact checkers here at The Post, the great Glenn Kessler and Michelle Lee, they looked into this and they basically found that those numbers don't exactly tell the full story and that the real number of people affected is actually closer to to 90,000. So the confusion and the the botched implementation, this is one thing. But, But what about the legality of this? And to help us answer that, I talked to Ben Johnson, executive director of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. So throughout history, presidents have actually had a lot of control over our borders, over immigration policy. Uh, Is this particular order legal? Does it fall within the bounds of presidential power? 
You're right. The president has enormous power. The president and the Congress have, have broad power and wide latitude regarding decisions about who comes into the country and the processes that they have to go through to be admitted. However, the most powerful document in the United States when it comes to laws is certainly the Constitution. And the president or the Congress is not allowed to exercise the authority that they've been given in a way that's contrary to the Constitution. And I think in this particular instance, the executive order raises real concerns about is the litmus test for admission to the United States one of religion or political opinion? Uh, those are two areas where I think certainly the religion issue is going to raise serious, serious concerns. Uh, the United States is forbidden under the First Amendment to the Constitution to discriminate based on religion or to establish a religion in the United States. So to that point, we've seen people trying to challenge this executive order. What can we expect from this legal process? Where can people actually make a difference? You know, lawyers and people have impacted by this law have gone to the courts. And the president has broad authority to uh, control you know, many aspects of the immigration system and to decide how the immigration laws uh, will be enforced. But those decisions impact real people. And those real people have opportunities to make uh, their cases and their injuries known to a court. Uh, in this particular instance, uh, what we saw was that Literally, while people were on a plane, the president passes this order. And when they land at an airport, they are told that the legal permission that they've been given uh, has been invalidated by the president of the United States. And what they did, or really what lawyers on their behalf did, was filed a petition for habeas uh, corpus, which is literally let the body go, <laughs> to release these people from custody, to say to the Trump administration, you cannot continue to detain these people for these reasons. So there you have an individualized case in front of a judge, and the judge is able to make a determination. In this particular instance, what the judge ordered was that these people be released from custody. Uh, as part of the claim, the attorneys said that these people are representative of a broader class of people that are in the exact same situation. Uh, this sort, sort of a, a class action is what it's called, this class action uh, petition, uh, then put in front of the judge not only the cases of those individuals, but other potential people in the same situation. So it provides a remedy to that uh, immediate person in front of them. And then the judge took the further step of saying, you can't do this to the next person in line to protect others from same or similar kinds of behavior. Uh, from there, now that there is this te temporary restraining order, the government is on a nationwide basis prevented from doing the things that the court told them they can't do until further notice. Now there will be a hearing to determine whether these executive orders pass constitutional muster or not. The temporary restraining order was issued based on uh, proving that there's a likelihood of success, and that was enough to, to uh, restrain the government's behavior now. But it's not the final word. So one other thing we've seen is, so Sally Yates was fired. Um, she was acting attorney general at the time, uh, fired for refusing to defend this executive order within the Justice Department. Now we've seen a new acting attorney general put in place by the Trump administration, Dana Buente, who said he will go ahead and carry out this order. So what is the role of the Justice Department here? Justice Department plays a really, really important role. I always have played a really important role in, in defending all the people in the United States and using its power to prosecute for liberty. It's part of their motto. Uh, so they play a very important, although they work as an agency of the executive branch, the attorney general works for the president, 
the system that we have created makes clear that the president is not immune from the authority and the actions of the Department of Justice. And where the president has stepped outside the bounds of constitutionality, it's the job of the attorney general to rein them in. It's a really critical agency in the government, and the attorney general has a sacred duty to defend everybody in the United States from constitutional violations and deprivations of liberty. So many people are basically comparing this executive order to something that Obama, at least the administration, is comparing this to something Obama did in 2011. Can you speak a little bit about how those two things compare? They don't think they compare <laughs> really at all. In uh, in 2011, the president, President Obama, did institute a an Iraqi security screening process, but it was absolutely not a ban. Similarly, there's been an argument that the seven countries that President Trump has identified are the same seven countries that Obama listed as countries of concern. But again, there was never a ban on immigration from those seven countries before this executive order. Uh, I think it's totally appropriate for us to constantly evaluate our screening procedures, evaluate our intelligence gathering systems, make sure that they're up to the task, make sure that they're aimed at the right places in the world that pose real threats. But the idea that in the pursuit of those enhancements, we should or must end processing from those countries or engage in religious litmus tests or national origin litmus tests, that takes us down a path that I think is destructive, not only to our core values, but also to the security screening process that we're trying to develop. Okay, Mark, so according to what we've heard from both of these interviews, this type of executive order on immigration is pretty unusual from a historical perspective. And the legality of this isn't totally clear yet. So President Trump can legally issue this executive order, but there are already courts challenging it in various ways. How successful can these cases be in undoing the order? What can we expect going forward? Well, if the court cases so far are any guide, judges are basically saying they're looking at this executive order and saying that at least on the surface, it appears to lack constitutionality. And they in these emergency orders that they've filed to stop some of the aspects of the order from being implemented, the judges have concluded that there is a great likelihood that they will eventually come to the decision that this is unconstitutional. Of course, this depends on the arguments made in the court and which judges draw the cases and all of that. And there's a long way to go. And there's also a question of whether the Trump administration will comply if the order is to, to freeze these bans. So uh, we had some mixed messages, at least in the rhetoric from the Trump administration so far, about whether they are going to actually comply with any given judge's order. Can they do that? Can they just not comply? <laughs> well, they're not supposed to. You're supposed to follow the law. But can they? I mean, a president can issue an order. I mean, what that comes to immediately then is a constitutional crisis. You know, in the end, the ultimate authority there would probably be the Supreme Court. And whether the administration would defy an order of the Supreme Court, well, that's now we're into total speculation. So the order says they'll implement the ban until they figure out how to increase scrutiny for people coming from these countries. Is that something they can do in the amount of time that's been allotted to them in this order? Essentially, what happens after 90 days, after 120 days? It's a great question. And uh, given the pace of government and the complexity of these issues, it's very easy to imagine that uh, at the end of 120 days, people in the Department of Homeland Security will come back and say, we don't know yet. 
and it'll then be up to the administration to say, okay, we're going to extend this another 120 days or any other number that they come up with or go back to the way things were before. On the other hand, it's quite possible that they'll come back with a plan and they'll say we you know, need to extend this extreme vetting that President Trump promised in the campaign and probably the bureaucrats who will be in charge of writing these regulations will come back and say, you know, we pretty much already do extreme vetting. Maybe we'll tack a new name on it and, and do it uh, and change a few things to, to make it look uh, fresh and new. But if, if you talk to the people who actually do this work, they'll say, we've been pretty extreme in our vetting. And if you talk to any of the people coming into the country, they'll say, yeah, they were extreme. It took them two years to handle my case. Okay, so one thing that we've heard from a lot of supporters of Trump's ban is that they say that they feel safer, that the people trying to get into the country, quote, can wait in the name of American safety, and that it sends the right message of strength to our enemies abroad. What's your take on that? Does this executive order actually make Americans safer? Well, you know, it, it's kind of uh, in the eye of the beholder. Uh, the post-Jenna Johnson went out to a little town in western Maryland and talked to a lot of Trump supporters there, and they're thrilled about this. They see the president and taking action, doing what he said in the campaign and uh, making them safer. They feel like uh, this means that people will not be coming into the country who could become radicalized uh, and could threaten their safety. On the other hand, this is something that is playing very poorly overseas. There's a lot of feeling, especially among our European allies, that what we've done here is actually enhanced the radical argument against us. Wednesday evening, the president was supposed to have an hour-long conversation with the Australian prime minister. It ended up being cut off after about 20, 25 minutes because the United States had agreed to take half or so of the 2,500 refugees that Australia had admitted from some of these very same countries that we've now uh, banned entry from. And Trump said, we don't want them. We don't want these refugees at all. Aside from just his undiplomatic language and approach, uh, the fact of a United States president saying we would not be living up to a already signed agreement uh, was very unsettling not only to the Australians but to others around the world uh, who uh, rely on their agreements with the United States for, on all kinds of issues. So you've spent a lot of time with Donald Trump as author of Trump Revealed. Do you feel like some of the that his approach to executive orders and what we've seen over him over the past two weeks of his administration. Do you think any of this is reflective of his personality? Well, sure. Uh, Donald Trump in our interviews uh, told us, I am an army of one. And he really sees himself as someone who, by force of personality, by his rhetoric that breaks through political correctness and all of that, he sees himself as someone who can get things done in a way that those crazy people in the government just never can. Right at the end of the inaugural address, he said, the hour of action is upon us. And that That's how he sees himself. That's why we're seeing this blizzard of executive orders in the first days of the administration. We've now covered all of this, you know, whether or not it's it's legal, whether or not it's precedented. My final question to you is one that we end these shows with. Can he do this? Can he is this within his presidential power? Is it within the bounds of the Constitution? Can he do it? At the moment, yes. In the long term, not so clear. So the law gives the president the power to regulate immigration. And so he can say, 
uh, you know what, I'm going to cut the number of refugees we allow in, in half or whatever. And uh, all presidents have done that. President Obama actually increased the number of refugees we take each year, uh, some, something around 80,000 to something around 110,000 per year. And now Trump is proposing to take it back down to about 50,000. That's totally within his right. What is unclear is whether these orders and, and any other new regulations that he might try to impose are constitutional. And so there are constitutional and legal limits. And the law that's prevailing right now is the 1965 law that says we don't choose who comes into the country by their nation of origin. And he's saying, well, we are going to make those decisions based on nation of origin. We also have a law that says it's not done by religion. And although this order doesn't specifically say we're going to choose people by religion, it does say we're going to prioritize certain religions, namely Christians. So this is right on the edge. And that's why the courts are now going to have to decide, has he crossed that line? Great. Mark, thank you so much for being here. Happy to do it anytime. You can follow Mark Fisher on Twitter at MF Fisher and me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Mikes. Let us know what you thought of this episode and if you have suggestions for future episodes. If you liked it, please share it, tell a friend, review it on iTunes, and make sure you subscribe to get a new episode every Friday. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Carol Alderman with additional reporting from Tanya Sachinsky and design direction from Rachel Orr. Our logo illustration is the work of Loren Boglio. Thanks, guys.